caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It's self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. Warfare. (laughs) I'm like, warfare. (laughs) Okay, one more time. ambivalently yours, and this is Rebelliously Tiny, a podcast where each week a special guest helps me respond to one of the thousands of personal questions I've received on social media. In a world that teaches us that strength is loud, harsh, and masculine, this is a place for those of us whose struggle is both impossibly large and rebelliously tiny. Here's this week's question. I'm going to uni, and one of my friends got raped at the beginning of the year. It makes me so sick to my stomach that such a high percentage of girls at uni get raped, and yet they refuse to do anything about it. She went to the college counselor and the police. Everyone made it seem like it was her fault. The garbage mail got her extremely drunk, and she thought they were friends, but then he took her to his room and assaulted her. I want to help, but it makes me so mad. I don't want to scare her. Yeah, so uh, I'm the public education coordinator at a sexual assault center, and so my job is to prevent sexual violence. And that is many things. (laughs) Um, Most of my job is spent with high school and university students. Um, I talk to about 6,000 people a year um, and talk with, and I do workshops and trainings, and we talk about, like, healthy relationships and consent. In fact, no, I don't like that word, healthy relationships, Um, but we we mostly talk about consent and, like, how to get consent and what good consent looks like and where we've been taught about consent and what is pleasure. And so my job is amazing. I really, really love it. Um, And I do lots of other stuff, too. I organize huge events like feminine scene fairs and Take Back the Night. Um, I do a lot of community collaboration. Um, I do a lot of workshops and trainings, like I mentioned. And a piece of my job is doing media, both old media and new media. The Sexual Assault Centre of Hamilton, Ontario in Canada, or SASHA, is a feminist, nonprofit, community-based organization of women guided by anti-racist and anti-oppressive values. We called Cricket on the phone from the studio, and though the connection was a little crackly due to our inexperience with sound technology, the call itself was both enlightening and encouraging, especially in the current political climate. So I guess um, I reached out to you because with this project, I'm tr- I'm asking people for help, basically, to answer some of the thousands of questions that people write to me on Tumblr. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot of questions about, like, sexual assault and that I feel very, like, unqualified to answer. So I figured I would ask a professional <laughs> for help. I think there's a lot going on in that question. Um where would you like to start? <laughs> the two places I want to start is, is like, love and appreciation as, as well as rage. <laughs> so, like, love and appreciation that this survivor has this friend in their life who who is kind and caring and also angry. 
Um, and that leads me to like being sitting in a place of like being really, really frustrated and angry that the survivor hasn't gotten the support that they deserve from systems, from counselors, from university, and um, and from police, and rage that the sexual assault happened at all. It's a little bit scary when you feel like the people that are supposed to be there to help you um, tend to be like suspicious of of victims a lot of the time. Yeah, and so we're having more of a cultural conversation where folks know that um, police response is not adequate most of the time. That like, so like that's something that anywhere I go, regardless of who I'm talking to, folks are like, know that most folks don't go to the the police, you know, like one to five percent of survivors go to the police. And even when I'm with a class of grade nines that are like super victim blaming, if I have people, any people, any age who are being super victim blaming to me, I always ask like, so to sexual assault to least reported crime in North America, why is that? And then they tell me all these reasons. They're afraid, and the number one reason survivors don't go to the police is they're afraid that they're gonna, uh, they're gonna, they're afraid that they're not gonna be believed. And so that this happened to this survivor as well, that they were failed by systems, is really heartbreaking. Um, the next step of being failed by systems is, okay, so what are we gonna do about it? And I don't put that on this survivor, and I don't put that on this survivor's friends. I put that on all of us as like communities. Okay, systems are failing survivors, now what are we gonna do about it? And there's two things. We can reform systems, and demand action and change, and we can look for healing outside of systems. And that's what most survivors are doing. The second thing is we're redefining, you know, healing doesn't always look like going to the police to us. Maybe can you give examples of, like, systems outside of the police or...? Yeah, so um, it's really powerful when survivors get their experience validated from other survivors. So the easiest thing I think of is, like, support groups that exist that... Um, you know, sexual assault centers and other places. I think of places like Tumblr, like um, like the Tumblr, I Believe You, It's Not Your Fault. I think of um, projects like um, Project Unbreakable, which is a website of survivors holding up things that their abusers said to them. Um, I, yeah, I think of art. I think of, like, um, uh, Stella Starchild's art. And I think of... Um, yeah, a lot of people who are making zines or paintings. Um, yeah, I think of people whose healing is being outside in nature, um, and and that that friends so often ask us, why didn't you report to the police? Like that's the barometer for whether or not something happened to you is real. Instead, I want friends to to ask, what can I do for you? And. Um, I really like that that this friend who's asking this question appears to be like I'm I'm telling I'm I'm there for my friend and that's really amazing and 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 friends who are there for survivors like please give yourselves a high five because not all friends are there for survivors. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a it's a scary thing, a hard thing to to be there because there's always this fear of like saying the wrong thing or like do you have any sort of I don't know like tips for friends like of how like what are things they could do to help um yeah and so um think validating that 
it doesn't make you a bad friend if you freeze and your tummy drops. Like, you're still a good friend if you have a little mini freak out. You know, try your best uh, to hold that freak out in and get help later um, and be there for your friend. But in the immediate thing, you know, just really validating them, saying, I believe you, it's not your fault, asking them, how can I help? What do you need me to do? Um, instead of jumping right into um, fix-it things, because fix-it things make us feel good, like, I'm going to take you to the police. I'm going to, so like, I'm going to get you a safe place to sleep tonight. Those can be helpful things, but just ask, you know, hey, do you want to talk about what to do tonight? And if they say no, just be with them. If they say yes, then say, yeah, maybe we can think about finding you a safe place to sleep tonight maybe going to the hospital, um, if you want an evidence collection kit done, and uh, police is an option. These are options you get to decide. So giving power back, even though um, somebody um, might, their, their crisis brain might be ha having them struggle to make decisions. But saying, you know, thank you for telling me, you're really brave to tell me, I'm here for you, those are all things that you can help to do for a friend. And then also just validating, like, it's scary, it can be, feel like a big responsibility, and friends who are supporting friends deserve support as well. So, you know, at Sasha, on our crisis line, we take calls from friends and family and coworkers and neighbors and classmates, and you can call and say, you know, hey, my friend disclosed to me, and I'm scared I didn't say the right thing. Um, if you're calling us, you know, you probably did, um, but talking to somebody confidentially, um, like that, that's, you know, you're not telling stories about your friends and it's never going to get back to them, um, is really powerful just to know, like, that, to have that feeling in your tummy go away, like, oh, I'm worried I didn't do this right. Honestly, 90% of what a survivor is going to need in a first disclosure is someone to listen to, like, to listen to them, listen to them be angry about that, that a friend did this to them, be angry that the police let them down, you know, to be confused and to not have the answers, just to listen to all those emotions is is really, really a huge help. I can't overstate how much listening is important. Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of the people that write to me, they're not necessarily, like, looking for me, this, like, stranger on the internet to, like, tell them what to do, but more they just, like, need to let it out and, like, tell someone, and, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that one of the most sort of significant things that a friend can do is to just listen I think we we undervalue the power of just like listening to each other sometimes oh my goodness yes and um listening uh that's why like the word active listening has the word active in it but it feels very passive when we do it active listening is really exhausting <laughs> when you're doing it right when you're not thinking of the next thing to say when you're trying to handle your freak out internal freak out moments that are happening active listening is exhausting so friends please give yourselves high fives and applause for all that amazing active listening that you're doing and you know survivors tell us at Sasha when we ask um, when we're doing counseling at the end of counseling we ask folks what did we do differently and they tell us you know you really listened instead of just like giving me a telling me like you need to do this 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 and this you really listened what's going on and then the next part of like really listening is is validating so like validating that things are things are crappy validating that it's frustrating 
Um, I guess I want to talk a bit too, a little bit about like the culture on campuses right now and how like it's becoming sort of like a hot topic like rape on campus um and I'm wondering like like how you're feeling about like the status of of these kinds of conversations and the backlash that's happening on campuses maybe in Canada or the U.S. or yeah, um, so in Ontario what's happening is uh, we have a sexual violence action plan that has mandated post-secondary institutions to have a sexual assault response po policy and then to also have some sort of education happening on campus. Um, as a public educator, I'm always excited when we have, we're invited to more tables because like five years ago we weren't being invited to even work with campuses. Like folks weren't saying the word like folks in administration weren't saying the word sexual violence and they didn't know that our center exists so like i'm excited to be um invited to tables i'm excited when we're creating conversations i'm really worried around the conversation of on uh, campus-based sexual violence that we're really tokenizing it like well we we did a workshop during welcome week um and um, that's that's very surface level. We need to, to do the deep work of ending rape culture. It needs to be year-round. It needs to acknowledge injustices. It needs to acknowledge systemic oppression. And we need to be working to end injustice and systemic oppression. Um, so for colleges and universities, they are so well-resourced. I challenge them, I challenge every post-secondary institution, put as much energy and resources that you are putting into ending plagiarism on your campuses to ending rape culture and sexual violence. That's my benchmark. Once we see the same amount of resources, time, commitment, and conversation around that, that we see around plagiarism on campuses, put towards ending rape culture and sexual violence, I'll be like, okay, now, now we have buy-in. Yeah. So um, I have a challenge for administration. And then um, I also, I'm, I'm excited the conversation's happening, but I don't want the entire conversation about sexual violence to be, oh, on campus. Um, for me, there's a little bit of, um, of classism there about who are we protecting? Because sexual violence, um, campus is for sure a site that it happens and and I want to be discussing risk factors, but quite often uh, folks who are going to, able to access post-secondary are quite privileged, and so I want to be ending sexual violence everywhere, and I want to be talking about where else in our communities is sexual violence happening, and, and in the province I live in, in Ontario, it's mostly the conversation is directed towards campus-based sexual assault. Um, so I, I don't want my community and workplaces and other schools and uh, to be to be lost in that conversation. Um, and lastly, I see a lot of survivors um, across North America um, speaking out about how their campus handled them reporting their sexual assault, and that's really exciting. I want to honor and validate that um, not every survivor speaks about their experience, and that is okay. Um, because sometimes we set up this binary of like, wow, it was so powerful that these survivors spoke out. And um, that can leave survivors who are choosing not to share their story on Twitter or on Tumblr or by reporting to their campus or reporting to the police, that can sometimes leave them feeling shamed. And I, I want to give them the clear message that like your story is yours and what you do with your story is, is absolutely your choice and you are making the right choice for you. 
Um, and at the same time, I'm, I'm very excited to see folks filing human rights complaints against their universities and, and challenging universities to do better when it comes to how we treat survivors of sexual violence um, when they report. Also, like, I don't want to just make reporting structures better for, for survivors. I want to actually end sexual violence. And that, that means looking at where misogyny, trans misogyny, homophobia, racism, classism are happening on our campuses. And um, there's a lot of hierarchy happening on, uh, at post-secondary institutions. So it can be really, really hard to do work around anti-oppression on campus. I want to treat having support skills about around survivors, but being ready to support survivors, and I want to treat bystander intervention, getting ready to, you know, interrupt stuff that may lead to rape, I want to treat that like first aid. And I come off as this person who's grumpy and jealous of first aid, because I am. <laughs> the chances of somebody running into somebody who's having a cardiac emergency is really, really low compared to the person who may run in, who may take a class with a survivor, who may, um, you know, see something sketchy happening at a bar that needs to be interrupted, okay? Yet, first aid is required for lots of jobs, and you have to take it every two years to recertify, even though you're probably not going to run into somebody who's having a drowning emergency or a cardiac emergency. The chances of you running into a survivor who needs to be listened to and believed or um, seeing a woman at a bar who's being harassed and needs you to step in and pretend they're her friend. Hey, I've been looking for you all night. Where have you been at? That's way higher. And so we need to practice those skills before we're in that crisis emergency place. And we need to treat it like first aid. So that's my dream, where we have these courses on supporting survivors and bystander intervention. They're taken regularly. We have to practice the skills. And so that will lead us becoming better at having these conversations. Huh, that's super interesting. I never thought about it in, like, relation to first aid. But you're totally right. I feel like people are so much more comfortable with dealing with, like, something that happened to you, like, that's visibly physical, like if you break your arm than if it's like some sort of like sexual violence or if you're having some sort of like um like emotional uh reaction to something like if you can't like physically see it it's like when like people aren't like good enough victims because they don't like look like victims I I feel like people just if you can't see it then it's probably not real yeah, and that really has to do with misogyny. Like, um, why can't we just believe survivors when they tell us how they're feeling? You know, why can't we just trust survivors that they know best for themselves? Gian Gomeshi is a Canadian musician, writer, and former CBC radio broadcaster for the popular show The Q. In 2014 and 2015, Gomeshi was the subject of allegations of sexual harassment and assault, and was later arrested. He was acquitted of five of the charges on March 24, 2016, and the other charges were dropped two months later. I remember the day of the Gomeshi acquittal. I remember the drawing I posted online. I remember spending a lot of time on social media. But more specifically, I remember the work that the people at Sasha did to support survivors. Yeah, so um, Sasha, like, and myself, um, oh, I'm so bad at, like, saying things that I've 
done awesomely, but I helped to co-create the I Believe Survivors, We Believe Survivors campaign, and that we did the day of, like we prepared, we knew that the verdict of Gian Gameshi would not be awesome, and so we spent a lot of time preparing. And Farah Khan and I took, um, we have... And we have this thing that we use a lot at Sasha called 50 Ideas for Coping. We probably wrote it 15 years ago. And so with the help of Hannah, a uh, volunteer, we updated it to be a little more 2016 because we knew uh, and we added gifts and stuff and we, we added 10 more. So it was 60 ideas for coping, and so we could do a self-care hour. So we knew that the Gian Gameshi verdict would be a lot of things. Uh, we knew it was a moment for us to respond and tell the truth around survivors' coping strategies and systemic injustice uh, that survivors experience. Um, and we also wanted to be a space for caring, love, and support for survivors who were were witnessing this this trial happening and how, how, you know, that would be impactful for them to see a survivor being attacked in the media and to have friends who either know their survivor or don't, story or don't know their survivor story just saying really flippant things that they don't even, their friends don't even think are victim-blaming but really are. So that's, that's why we wanted folks to share selfies with the hashtag I believe survivors or we believe survivors and then you know later on in the afternoon we just had an hour where we tweeted one thing every minute that folks can do to take care of themselves yeah I thought that was so great because it took the focus away from him um which can be that can be fun really triggering too that all the media tends to focus on the abuser um or when they t- focus on the victim, it's usually in a in a blaming kind of way. But I, I thought it was so great that you did that, that it was sort of like giving importance back to the survivors and that their whole existence doesn't have to be so um, linked around this person. And so much of our work around ending rape culture, creating cultures of consent is reactive. And, and that's important. Like, it's important if crappy things are happening in your community to, to point it out, say, hey, this is happening, and then do the next step, saying, like, this is crappy, um, and and to mobilize, to, like, have a response. Our, the entirety of our work can't, can't be um, reactive, though. We need to know, like, have some sort of inkling about what a community based around consent and respect and ending systemic oppression like we have to have some inkling if we're going to build that community (laughs) so um yeah like asking survivors that i work with or that i'm friends with like what what would an ideal day look like to you where you didn't have to deal with rape culture you know asking us to dream really big um is a has to be a part of our work and a while ago at sasha we got this amazing teaching from joan riggs which is live tree dead tree and and dead tree is us describing colonialism and capitalism and patriarchy and so 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 much of my work has been dead tree so like um an example of dead tree is uh uh going to a high school and giving them a checklist how to know if you're in an unhealthy relationship that's that's dead tree it's describing violence it's 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 um yeah it's just talking about the violence and dead tree is needed like 
we need to say, you know, that's sexual assault. What you're describing to me is sexual violence, and, and it's not okay. But we also have to do live tree. So the live tree equivalent is me going to a group of grade nines and asking them, what does consent look like to you? How, how would you, what's one thing you look for in a friend? How would you like to be treated by your friends? Instead of making a long list of me coming in with a list of what is violence, asking them, how do you want to be treated is, is live tree. Yeah, because I find sometimes, even just for me, like it can get very um, disheartening and exhausting at times, I guess, to be constantly reacting. And I've had to, in recent years, like include sort of like self-care into, <laughs> into what I'm doing. Um, because, yeah, it gets intense. Like, I don't know, like it must for you, since this is your, your job, like do sometimes just like want to give up or do, do you find it like difficult um to sort of hang in there i find it really difficult and like i want to validate for for folks who are finding it difficult to live in patriarchy and rape culture and a culture of homophobia like yes like living in capitalism is hard and it's difficult and like to them and to myself i say you know your existence is resistance <laughs> Um, so like, and I, I remind myself that like, like you existing today, if, if all you did was exist, you know, you, you got out of bed and you, you, you did one thing that is okay. You, you fulfilled <laughs> what you needed to do. Um, Kim Katrin Milan talks about gathering your peeps and, um, uh, you know, burnout happens when we feel isolated and, so it hurts me way, way, way more when I'm experiencing radical, uh, lateral violence from another feminist in our movement than it does when I have a random, you know, call me a gendered slur or something in a workshop. Um, there's this marketing principle around 20, 60, 20, that like 20% of people are not on board with you and they're never going to have a rational conversation with you. And so like I put misogynist hate groups in that, that category. I put, you know, folks in my workshops who are rape apologists, um, you know, I'm, I'm, when I confront a rape apologist in a workshop, my, my goal is not to change that person's mind or behavior. My goal is to take care of everybody else in the room and let them know that their words are not okay. Um, then the 60% of the folks in the middle will have, they're on the fence. They'll have a really rational conversation with you. And that is where I'm going to put my energy. You know, when I'm discussing stuff with somebody on Facebook or Instagram or face to face, if they are like willing to have a conversation with me and they're not baiting me, I'm going to for sure chat with them. And then 20% of the folks are already your cheerleaders. And those are folks that, yes, I'm going to go for them for love and support and let them know that I'm exhausted and I need help. But I'm not going to go. That's not the people that I'm always going to be having these conversations with because I, um, I don't, they get it already, you know. Um, and when I start to need care or feel exhausted or feel, um, uh, feel like we're not changing anything, there's a couple of things I remind myself about. One is that we don't need to have 100% of the folks on board to make a lasting change in our culture. We actually only need 20 to 30% of the folks to make a behavioral or attitudinal shift. That is a way more manageable goal than 100%. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, the other thing is around goal setting. I try to make my goals really manageable. Um, 
and at the same time dream really, really big. So I sit on a whole ton of community collaboration committees where I don't think that they're in it to end end violence. I think that they're in it to like maybe support survivors, which is an okay goal, but I want the end goal in in a hundred years that we have ended sexual violence. Like and so having a very, very long timeline I know I've accepted that I'm not going to end sexual violence in my lifetime. I'm working on a 100-year plan, and I'm working, I'm planting seeds now that will affect change 100 years from now. And so I want my grand goal to always be to end sexual violence and systemic oppression. And then for every event, for every coalition that I sit on, for every blog post, I'm like, okay, how does this fit into this goal? What are the smaller, tinier, more achievable goals? within that goal. So for We Believe Survivors, the goal was twofold, to have a response to the gross media coverage, um, you know, so to, to expand the conversation about what survivors' realities are also like, and to let survivors know that they are loved, supported, and believed. So creating more reasonable goals makes me feel a lot better about the work that I'm doing, and then also like gathering my peeps that I can go to and say, you know, I'm, I'm really, really struggling, and I need support and care. And then the last thing is like, yeah, that um, this work is impactful. It took me a really long time because I, I, I put myself aside, and I was like, no, I'm doing this work for other survivors. And I was like, no, I'm doing this work for me as well, and so I need to take breaks. Um, I need to have manageable work plans, I need to have manageable days, or I'm not going to be in this movement for very long. Towards the end of our call, Cricket thanked me for my work and praised the contribution of the radical softness movement and all of the artists working within these ideas. Radical softness is an expression coined by Laura Mathis, an amazing American artist who also happens to be my friend. This is what Laura has to say about their idea of radical softness. My main goal was to accept my own vulnerability and to say that there's nothing wrong with softness. It is about me sorting through my feelings on mental illness and finding power in my frequent emotional breakdowns. This Audre Lorde quote comes to mind. Caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it's self-preservation, and that's an act of political warfare. For more information on radical softness, please visit lauramathis.com. L-O-R-A-M-A-T-H-I-S.com. To learn more about Sasha, please visit sasha.ca, Sasha Hamilton on Facebook, at Sasha Tweets on Twitter, and Sasha Broadcast on YouTube. Rebelliously Tiny was written, produced, and edited by me, Ambivalently Yours, and co-produced by Hannah McCasland. The music is by Greg Barkley. This episode was recorded at Obero Artist Run Centre in Montreal, with technical support from Stéphane Claude. Special thanks to the entire team at Obero for their technical, financial, and emotional support. Additional thanks to our special guests for taking the time to talk with us. To learn more about my work and this podcast, please visit my website, ambivalentlyyours.com, or follow me on social media, at ambivalentlyyours on Instagram and Facebook, at ambivalentlyyou on Twitter. To see the drawing inspired by this episode, or to submit a question of your own, please check out the Tumblr where this all began, ambivalentlyyours.tumblr.com. If you like our podcast, 
please share it with your friends and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. With your help, hopefully we can build up enough momentum so that website development and shippable mattress companies want to fund our second season. Thank you.